0: Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you. Glad that you're here. And uh, uh, before we go any further, I just kind of want to get us thinking a little bit this morning about our theme, and then we'll worship a little bit more and let the kids go to kids church. But we're talking about famous last words. And I don't know if you're like me, but over the years, I love to collect quotes. I have books of quotes and web pages that have good quotes. And I I particularly love to get quotes so that um, if I find really good ones, then I can just post those on Facebook and seem intelligent, you know, and don't have to actually say anything of my own. But uh, there's a category of quotes that we call uh, last words. And there's kind of something sacred about the last words that people say, even if they're dumb. Um, We still like it's the last thing they said, so it's kind of important. And we're going to talk about last things, last words today. So I wanted to share with you just maybe a few of uh, some of my favorite. Uh, Anybody remember Lou Costello, Avon Costello, comedian? These were his his last words. His last words were, that was the best ice cream soda I ever tasted. So I just love that because I'm like, it's not a bad way to go. Go down to Dairy Queen, have a blizzard, you're gone. You know, I mean, it's just... I think it's better than Humphrey Bogart's last words, which were, um, I should have never switched from scotch to martinis, and I don't know, uh, like, what that was about, uh, but something. Um, Dominique Buhars, who was a, uh, a grammarian, um, so, you know, grammar teachers, and, and this was, this were his last words. I'm about to or am going to die. Either expression is correct. So just kind of... Good to think about. Uh, Edmund Gwynn, who was an actor, um, wh- as he was dying, he was asked, um, "Is it hard? Is it difficult to die?" Kind of a weird question, so he gave a weird answer. Uh, he said, "It's tough, but not as tough as doing comedy." Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, Dylan Thomas, poet, maybe you've heard of him. Um, kind of some infamous word. His last words were, uh, "I've had 18 straight whiskeys. I think that's the record." <laughs> Those were his last words, so it probably is the record. Um, Oscar Wilde, playwright, his last words were, either the wallpaper goes or I do. <laughs> I felt that way, but I've never actually said that. Um, Richard Feynman, uh, who passed away in, I think, about 88, was a physicist, and I don't know, I just, kind of weird, but his last words were, I'd hate to die twice, it's so boring, so I don't, it's just, struck me as weird. I don't know if that's where the phrase bored to death came from. I'm not sure, but um, John Sedgwick, so this is one of my favorites. So here's this guy. Um, he is a commander in the Union Army in the Civil War. He was involved in what we call the Battle of the Wilderness, and so he's with the Union Army, and they're behind a barricade, and um, it's kind of in the middle of the battle. It's getting kind of quiet, and he doesn't know what's going on. So he looks at one behind his barricade. He looks at one of the soldiers and says, I'm going to peek over the barricade and just see what's going on. And the soldier says, I don't, I don't think Think that's a good idea, And as he, as he looks up over the barricade, he says, "They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance." That's all he said. That was, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> they wrote down the words, and there you go. Uh, Elizabeth I, uh, the first who, uh, Queen of England, passed away, in I think 1603, um, said some words that, you know, I, a couple months ago we did a series on time and the value of time, and I've always thought about that. She said, "All my possessions for a moment of time. A woman who had power and prestige and, and money and all that but realized at the last minute how, how importantly valuable time is. Uh, one more, Leonardo da Vinci, who, a genius, um, just uh, accomplished so many great things, and yet what I find striking are his last words, which were, I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Profound words, interesting words, but I want to I share with you today what, to me, are the most profound words. Famous last words. And I share them with you not because, just because they're, they're great, uh, just because they made it near the top of my list. I share them with you because they're kind of in a, in a, in a category all of their own. They're not only in, incredible, but they're powerful. And they changed, these words changed the course of, of my life. Um, now, I discovered these words when I was uh, 15 years old. And, and maybe you can relate to this, but I grew up in a household where we never, ever talked about God. We never talked about spiritual things. Never. I, I had never attended church by the time I was 15. Hadn't attended church. Hadn't read the Bible. Didn't know who Jesus Christ was. I was perplexed. I wondered who this guy was and what he must have done that the only time he was ever mentioned in my house was, you know, um, well, under difficult circumstances. Not the way that we would use his, word, uh, his name around here. But um, there came a time when I was 15 where I just started to ask some of the questions of life. Uh, you know, who, who are we? How do we get here? Um, where did life come from? Where's life going? Is there life after death? You ever ask that? Is there a God? If there's a God, what's he like and what's he want? What do I have to do to make him happy and, you know, to, to, to go to heaven and not go to hell if there's a heaven and a hell and all that? And I began to ask these questions, but the problem for me was I really didn't have any, any basis, any spiritual basis on which to get some answers. So I, I looked to some adults around me, and I, there were some religious people in my life, and so I, I asked them, you know, what, what's the meaning of life? And, and the answer they gave me was religion, couple different religions and hoops to j- jump through and stuff, and I don't know, there was just something, as I heard it, I thought, I don't know, that just doesn't, doesn't sound right to me. Um, I, I asked my grandfather. My grandfather was really into philosophy. Um, he said, here, this will help you, and he gave me a book. Anyone, anyone ever read the book? Uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, Anyone? Right, right. So reading that book is like watching Lost. I mean, you end up with way more questions, am I right? Than you start with. I'm like, thank you, no help at all. And then, um, then while well, I was really into science and, and really into biology and cosmology, and while I thought they were interesting and that there was a lot to learn, it did not answer the fundamental question of life Is there a God? And where do we come from? And how do you explain the design and all of that? And so. I was seeking, and uh, somebody, I ended up with a book in my possession that was about the life of Christ. And I found that intriguing because I didn't know anything about him. So I began to read this book, and and as I read it, I got about halfway through, I was talking about the life of Christ. And remember, I have no history. I don't know anything about the life of Christ, but as I get about halfway through, there's something in me that just clicks, and I don't know how to explain it, but there was a, a switch that turned on in me, and I knew this guy was real, and this story was real, and Jesus was, in fact, God. And I remember giving my life to Christ, and I would, I would describe the, the, uh, what happened to me that evening as not so much a religious experience, if you will, as much as a decision to become a student of Jesus Christ, to find out who this guy was. So I began to read my Bible. And here's what I found. I found that we were designed by God with a purpose. We were designed in his image to know him, to know his love, and to love him in return. But history says that repeatedly we would, we would reject the love of God and go in our own direction. That's called sin. But God passionately would come after us. And, and one day, about 2,000 years ago, he, he decided to, to send his son down to this earth. He was born to a, a virgin named Mary. You may have heard that story. And he's born and he's, he's raised in a town called Nazareth. It was uh, in, in Palestine under Roman occupation. At the time, it was a backwater town. It wasn't like a you know, big famous town you'd want to you'd come from, not like Washugal or something. Nobody knew about Nazareth. They would always say, you know, what good thing comes from Nazareth. But he was, he was raised there He became a carpenter as a young man. And at the age of 30, we're told that he, he hung up his carpentry belt and he began to travel around Palestine in his lifetime he never really traveled very far but he would travel around the countryside and and he began to share with people about God and he began to explain God to them and share God's love with them and, and worked miracles and and fed people who were hungry and made this connection we're told that he would come to a town and he would teach and people would be amazed because he didn't teach like the other religious teachers what he was teaching was not ritual and, and religion and jumping through hoops. He, was, he kept talking about having a relationship with God as if somehow that was possible. Now, the religious leaders of that day, they didn't like that stuff. They didn't like this teaching about relationship. And, and so they, they had some confrontations with Jesus. And they finally decided they couldn't shut the guy up. He was becoming so popular. You know, the religious people didn't like him, but the average people did. They decided they had to get rid of him because he was ruining everything for them. And so they finally decided they conspired to put him to death. That's how how mad, that's how desperately uh, they wanted to get rid of him. So they paid off one of his disciples named Judas. They couldn't arrest Jesus in the middle of the day in broad daylight. He was way too popular. So they told Judas, we need to know when he's alone in a quiet place and then we can come and arrest him. That happened in the garden of Gethsemane while he's praying. They come and they arrest him. And they put him on trial. And they find him guilty, the Jews do, of blasphemy. That is that he claimed to be God, which he did claim, because he was. And he was guilty, if you can say that you're guilty of being God, if you really are God. And so they found him guilty, and he was like, that's me. And, and they wanted to put him to death. But they couldn't put him to death, because they were under Roman occupation. So they took him to some Roman leaders, and they said, this guy uh, is, he, he's telling people not to pay their taxes, <laughs> imagine that, and, uh, and he claims to be a king. And, you know, only Caesar's king, Right. So that's against a lot of claim to be a king so you need to put him to death and eventually the the Romans decided to put him to death and they decided to do it through crucifixion that's what the cross is all about and we're told that by this time in history, the, the Romans had crucified tens of thousands of people and they had a lot of ways of putting people to death, but the, the but the cross, crucifixion, uh, this, was, this was brutal. This was torture. And this was not just about putting someone to death. This is about sending a signal because it was very public and people would walk by and they would see a person being crucified and the, the message they were sending is, don't do what this guy did or this is what's going to happen to you. So they crucified Jesus. We're told that they tied him to a post and they whipped him within inches of his life, till he was bleeding and wounded. And then they, they untied him, they put a robe around him, a crown of thorns on his head. They began to mock him. They began to, to beat him in the face, blindfold him, and, and, and mock him and say, hey, if you're God, you know, and tell us who hit you. And then it says that they, they took him and they marched him up a hill Usually they would make the person who's going to be cross, uh, crucified carry the crossbeam, but we're told that Jesus had been beaten so badly that he couldn't do that, so they pressed someone into service, took him a short distance to where he was going to be crucified. They would have put that crossbeam on the ground, thrown him against it, and they would have attached him, usually with kind of almost big railroad-like uh, spikes through the wrists, and then they would hoist it up on that, on that beam, And then they would take a big spike and put it through the the heels to keep them up there. And and we're told that people would, would hang up there from hours to sometimes days where they would suffer. So here's Jesus, God pursuing us, God who is love, God who never sinned, up on that cross, dying, bleeding, suffering at the hands of the people who loved him, or the people that he loved, but people who had rejected him. And what I want to talk about today are are the things that he said when he was up there, when he was in pain, when he was being rejected. Because these words, these were life-changing, history-changing words. Well, happy Easter again. We're glad that uh, you're here with us. I was... When I was preparing for this weekend, I was looking through my Bible and I found a little. So I have this, <laughs> I have this little offering envelope from years ago. Actually, I confess this has been in my Bible for 32 years. It's uh, it's a little. Um, Offering envelope. Remember these to put them in the in the pews. And I was going to this church when I was in high school. And um, so I have to confess. So when I was in high school, I wrote notes in church. I did. Um, I know you don't do that, but I did. And so I on this particular weekend, it was a Sunday night, and I was I was sitting there. I had a friend, um, Steve. I was eighteen. He was twenty. He was a couple years older than me. He was like a you know like a big brother to me. He was definitely a spiritual mentor to me. Just a great just a, a great guy. Uh, and uh, somebody I really looked uh, looked up to. God used him in so many ways in my life. And, and Steve and I uh, sang in a band together. And so we're sitting in church one night and, uh, you know, we're there and, and uh, he had a new girlfriend, you know. So guys, when you're, you know, when you're broke and you can't afford it and, you know, you just want to spend some time with a girl, you can always invite her to church because it's free. And so they were sitting there and so she was sitting there and he was sitting. I was on the other side. And so he wrote me this note. I, you know, I've had this for 32 years. This is what he wrote. Nothing astounding at all. He writes, uh, well, he addresses it to Buff because that was my nickname for obvious reasons. And uh, <laughs> he says, I, uh, I, got, <laughs> uh, I got some really great things to share with you, uh, especially about, well, I'll tell you later because she's reading this as I write it. And he says, well, I wrote a new song. I think it's the best one I've ever written. And I really want you to sing it for the band Surrounded Rob's, which is how he, he signed stuff. And so, you know, I kind of thought, oh, that's cool. I put it in my Bible and I went home and... That night after church, uh, Steve got in his car and he drove his new girl home and he's very, very excited about her, really crazy about her, drove her home, dropped her off. He was driving home and he was going through an intersection. He had a green light. There was a kid who was exactly the same age as Steve um, coming this way, uh, extremely drunk, went through red light, hit Steve, killed him instantly. And the next morning, uh, I kind of read this in a whole new way. And I've had this in my Bible for 32 years because It reminds me of some things. It's just so easy sometimes to take life for granted. Just to get up in the morning and go, well, it's just another day, you know, I wonder what I'm going to do. But I always remember two things about this. I remember that Steve never got to pursue that relationship that he was so looking forward to. That was cut short. and, And I never got to hear that song. I bet it was a great song. I never heard it. Never got to sing it. But God has given me a lot of years since then. 32. And there are many times in my life when I'm just, you know, I don't know what I should do today, I don't know. And I always remember, every day is a gift from God. And God has used these last words of Steve to really direct me many times in my life. And so I, again, I continue to keep it in my Bible. But what I want to talk to you about today, and and maybe you can relate to that. You've had some people over the years who have said some last words to you that have really impacted your life. But what I want to talk about today is something that's even on a whole nother level. I want to talk about the, the last words of Jesus Christ and how they changed everything in my life. And not just my life, um, and not just for Christianity, but I believe for the trajectory of human history. Several um, things, and we're not going to cover all the, the final phrases of Christ today, but a few of them I want to mention. And the first one that you'll find in Scripture is this. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is the first thing that he says when he's up on the cross. And now, I don't know what your typical natural responses when somebody hurts you when somebody sins against you I, I don't know what you do if you're driving down highway 14 and you're driving along and you see somebody's going to come out and you're like don't do it, don't do it, don't do it and then the last minute they come out and you're going to hit on the brakes and you know I don't know if your knee jerk reaction is to like roll down the window and just say hey God bless you you know or what your reaction is when somebody says something about you or does something to you or hurts you you do something to bless them and they turn around and use it to hurt you. I don't know what your reaction is. But in Jesus' day, they had a code. We call it an eye for an eye code. And it was kind of their judicial code back then. And it said this, if someone poked you in the eye, you get to poke them in the eye. You know, if someone punches you in the shoulder, you get to punch them in the shoulder. An eye for an eye, a shoulder for a shoulder. If Somebody accidentally kills your pet goat, you get to kill their pet goat. An eye for an eye, a goat for a goat. That's the way that it worked back then. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus is is, is traveling around sharing about God. And he says things like, you've heard it say an eye for an eye, but I say to you, forgive those who sin against you. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, don't keep score when people sin against you because they're going to do it. They're going to do it. Don't keep score. It just makes you miserable. Jesus said things like, bless your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he's been saying this, he's been teaching this, and now he's on a cross. And, and now the very people that he loves and the, and the people that he, he came to this earth for, he's on, they've nailed him to a cross. He's hanging on the cross. And I just wonder if there weren't some people who they kind of remembered what he had taught and they're like, well, let's see what he does now. Let's see what Jesus does when he's in this situation. And he's up on that cross in terrible pain in agony. I don't know what you're like when you're in pain, you know, if you're a really patient person, if you're willing to suffer fools when you're in pain, but Jesus is up there, and instead of, instead of cursing people, instead of fighting against people, he begins to pray for them. That's what he's doing here. He's, he's praying, and what he prays is this. He prays, Father, forgive them, Now, I think it's interesting. He's not praying, you know, like for his own problems. He had plenty of problems to pray for, you know. He could have been praying, God, get me out of this thing. But he's not praying for himself. He's not praying against the people who are mocking him and laughing at him, which he could have been doing. He's not even praying about them. You know, the one thing I thought about this week was, I often pray about people, you know, but Jesus wasn't praying about them. He was praying for them. Now, I wonder, how could he do that? How could he pray for people That were, that were killing him. It's because he was a man on a mission. He was a man with a clear purpose. In fact, Jesus was the kind of guy when sometimes he would be traveling and he'd walk into a village and, you know, he'd walk into a village and there'd be two corners, so to speak. There'd be, you know, two coffee shops and on one corner there'd be a coffee shop and all the religious high fluting people would hang out there, you know? All the, you know, people who were spiritual and righteous and upstanding and rich and they would be over there and then maybe on the other corner would be sinners. You know, there would be like the prostitutes and the tax collectors and, you know, the down and outers. And when Jesus would walk into a town and he'd see those two groups, guess which group he would always gravitate toward? The sinners. And that really bothered the religious leaders because they were like, you know, hey, how come he doesn't come sit at our table, you know, and what's wrong with him? And one time he kind of came up against us with the religious leaders. And they said, how come Jesus doesn't, you know, how come he doesn't come sit with us at lunchtime? And This is what he said. I, the Son of Man, have come to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus said, you know, he didn't say, well, I came down here because I was up in heaven and I was lonely and I was kind of, you know, I just kind of came down because I was needy and I just needed some people to like me and affirm me and there's none of that stuff going on. Jesus says, "I, I came down here to seek the lost. I mean he was passionate. It, so often we miss that that passion of Christ. And Jesus is like, I'm up in heaven and I could have stayed there. Everything was great. I always get my way in heaven, you know, but but I love you guys. So I came down here and I sought after you and, and then we would reject him and he'd keep coming after us and we'd stiff arm him and he'd come after us and finally it says that we were so sick of him. We nailed him to a cross and he's up on the cross and he can't get off the cross. He's, he's on there, but he's still seeking us. I mean, don't miss that. He's like, I can't get off the cross. I can't come down and hug you, you know, but I can pray for you. And even on the cross, when he's nailed to the cross, he's still pursuing us. That's the thing that just blows me. You, know, you just can't. He's like, you can try, but you cannot stop me. Because I love you. And I'm coming after you. And so he's up on that cross and he, he's seeking them. Why is he seeking us? Because he wants to save us. Save us from our sin. And when these same people re- rejected him, he prayed for them. He prayed on their behalf. He, he says to the father, he says, Father, they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing here. It's true. They looked at Jesus, but they didn't see Jesus. They didn't, they didn't really know what was going on. It reminds me of the old story. I, I've told this before, but there's an old story told about years ago. You know, the, the, the one time the Pope comes to the United States. I, I don't ever tell Pope jokes, but this is a good one. So he comes he comes to the United States and he goes to Texas and he does a Pope crusade thing. And when he's done, he's supposed to get in the Pope mobile and go back to the hotel, but he doesn't want to. He's just like, been around crowds, and he wants some alone time, so he, uh, he books a limousine, and the limousine comes in, you know through the back, and he sneaks in the limousine, and he says, just drive. Just go out on a Texas highway and drive for a while. So they kind of go out. Nobody knows where he is or what he's doing. He's in the back of this limousine, and they're just driving across middle of nowhere in Texas, just driving along. And uh, the Pope starts to wonder, you know, I, I never really get to drive. Everyone always drives, and it would be kind of fun to drive. And so he knocks on the window, and he, and, and he tells the chauffeur, he says, you know, would it be okay if I drove? for a while, you know, and so he's like, you know, well, you don't have a license, but you are the Pope, and so I suppose, I guess, so he pulls over, and he, he lets the Pope in the driver's seat, and the Pope says, hey, why don't you go sit in the back, and you know, you can, you can just take a nap, so the chauffeur goes in the back and rolls out the window and takes a nap, and the Pope starts driving, Texas, middle of nowhere, driving down the road, and he's kind of going 40, and he's like, that's kind of cool, 50, 60, 70, 80. Pretty soon, the Pope's just like cruising at 95, just cruising down the road. He's like, wow, this baby can really move, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a, you know, police car pops up, and he's like, oh no, and the police officer pulls him over, and the Pope's like sweating, and the guy comes up, knocks on the window, and the window comes down, and the police officer sees the Pope, and he just turns white he doesn't say a word. He just walks back to his patrol car. He calls up his captain. He says, I think we have a problem. And the captain says, what's the problem? And he's like, I just pulled a really, really, really important person over for speeding. And the captain says, oh man, you you didn't pull over the mayor again, did you? And he's like, no, no, it's not the mayor. He's he's more important than that. And he's like, oh man, you didn't pull over the governor. Did you pull over the governor again? He's like, no, no, it's not the governor. It's somebody more important than that. And, and the captain knew that the vice president had been in town, and now he's really panicked. He's like, oh, no. Did you, did you pull over the vice president of the United States? He's like, no, no, it's, he's more important than that. He says, he's more important than the vice president. Who is he? And he said, I don't know, but he must be really important because he has a pope for a chauffeur. And so he doesn't know. He, he doesn't know what's going on. That is the dumbest joke. So he, they're looking, there they're looking at Jesus, but they don't, they don't see Jesus. They don't see the Son of God. They don't understand what's going on. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know who they're crucifying. They don't know what he's doing for them. In fact, Second Corinthians kind of pulls back the curtain and tells us here. It says that God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, who lived a perfect life to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus kind of does a swap with us. He takes all of our sin, all of our greed, all of our our sinful actions and and words and lust and all of that, and he he heaps all that upon himself, and he, he carries that load on the cross, and he pays for it. And then he swaps with us. He gives us his righteousness. That's what he gives to us. But they don't get that. They're crucifying Jesus, but he's up there and he's praying, "Father, forgive them." And we're told a little time passes while he's on the cross, and then he looks at it he's being he's being crucified with a couple of criminals, and he looks at one of the criminals and he says to him and a really interesting statement. He says, "Today you will be with me in paradise." That's one of the other statements that Jesus makes on the cross. Now. The religious leaders, you got to get the picture. He's on the cross, he's suffering, he's dying, and the religious leaders are mocking him and they're laughing at him. They're just like, you got to just, what what is wrong with these people? You know, they've just, for years, they've been trying to get rid of him and now he's on the cross and he's dying and they still, have, they're just like, you know, they're just like on a playground. They're like laughing at him and joking. And you got to ask yourself, how sick are these people? And they're saying things like, well, he saved other people, you know, let's see if he can save himself. And, you know, you say you're God's son, but where's God now? And, and hey, if you're really God, come down from the cross and then we'll believe you and worship you and everything will be cool. And we're told he's being, he's being crucified that day with two other criminals, one on each side of him. And at first it says they're both kind of talking smack at Jesus, just like, just like everyone else. In Matthew 27, it says this, in the same way, the robbers who were cru- crucified with him were heaping insults upon him. And again, it's just it's such kind of a weird scene. Here are these guys and their life is fading away. And what are they doing in the last moments of their life? They're like getting in on a mob mentality and they're making fun of Jesus. It's a weird, weird kind of situation. But some time goes by, a couple hours go by and we're told that one of the guys on the cross, he's he's just kind of, I don't know, it doesn't tell us what happens, but I think he's looking at Jesus, he's he's watching Jesus, he's listening to Jesus and something happens. There's some kind of, some switch goes on and he kind of does a 180 and all of a sudden he doesn't see Jesus the same anymore. He's looking at him and he's starting to believe there's something in him. God's doing a work in his heart. And he's starting to, he's starting to believe. So the other criminals kind of, you know, talk and smack at Jesus. And we're told that, that the other criminal looks at him and he rebukes him. And he says, hey man, what's wrong with you? Don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of death? He says, we are being punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Several interesting things that happen here in this passage. The first thing is that this guy is is confessing his sin. He's confessing his witness. He's saying, I deserve to be up here. But at the same time, he's confessing the righteousness of Jesus. He says, you know, Jesus, he hasn't done anything wrong. He doesn't deserve to be up here. He's basically confessing Jesus as the Lord of heaven. And he's appealing to Jesus to save him. And, And basically, that's what we call faith. Faith is just to trust in Jesus Christ, to trust that he is who he said he is, to trust that his work on the cross is enough for us to make us right with God. And and to me, that's interesting that this guy does a 180 at the end of his life, but what's way more interesting to me is what Jesus says to him. I mean, I I, I kind of expect Jesus to look over and go, oh sure, now, (laughs) now, your whole life you've been a jerk? Your whole life you've been breaking the law? You're up on the cross and for several hours you're just kind of talking smack at me and now you want me to forgive you and now suddenly as your life is ebbing away, yeah, good job. But that's not what he does. He looks at him and he says, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. He says, today is going to be a rough day. But by the end of it, you and I are going to be together in a better place. And this is what the Bible calls grace. Grace is the result of faith. When we trust in Jesus, God gives us a gift. That word grace, when we think of grace today, sometimes we think of a gracious person, but when the Bible talks about grace, it's talking about an undeserved and unearned gift that God gives us, a gift that can't be paid back, a gift that we don't deserve, and it's the result of faith and salvation is always by grace. You can never be saved through religion, or through ritual, or through being good enough. I mean, think about it for a minute. What can this guy do? This guy's on the cross, he's nailed to the cross. What what one thing can he do to contribute to his salvation? Right, he can't do anything. Can he like get baptized? No, I don't think they're going to, you know, let him off the cross for 10 minutes to get baptized. He can't be baptized. Can he, can he take communion? Can he be like, I know you just did communion, Jesus, but maybe we could just get down for a minute, and have a little wine, a little bread, you know. Then we can be good with each other. He can't go to church and take a membership class and put some money in the offering when it comes by. He can't jump through any hoops. He can't be good enough for a little while. There's nothing that this guy can do, zero, to contribute to his salvation. The only way anyone can ever get right with God is through grace. It's the only way. And I think that the struggle for us many times, for those of us who are not nailed to a cross, who are not helpless like this guy was, it's that somehow it's easy for us to think that we need to do something to add to what Christ has done for us. That we need to do something or give something or, or say something or be good enough for a while. And a lot of times we're, we think it because, well, we can, so we probably should. But in a sense, you know, we're all like that guy on the cross. And that there's nothing, nothing that we can do to contribute to our salvation. We can only believe. In Ephesians, it tells us this. It it says, it is by, notice, grace that you've been saved. That's true of everyone who's ever been saved. It's by grace. Through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. No one can say, I did it, I added to it. It's faith. Faith is what connects us. What is faith? Faith is just believing that what Jesus Christ did for us is enough. What happens when we believe? It says we are given the gift of grace. You can't earn it. You can only receive it from God. It's grace. It's faith. Jesus makes one more statement though while he's on the cross after this conversation with this criminal. In fact, it's the last thing that he says on the cross. In John 19, he says this. Jesus says, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his his spirit. Jesus says, it is finished. I, I don't know, do any of you live in a house like I live in, which requires constant repair and attention? Anyone besides me live in a house that, oh you have a free moment, you need to work on me, you know? And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife came in the house and she said, I don't know what the deal is, but my garage door opener won't work. And so I thought, well, I don't know what the problem could be. I mean, I only put it up 14 years ago. So I went outside, I looked at it and it was, you know, it was done, it had the, the crosses through the eyes and, you know, white flag. And so I, I need a replacement. We have this really high ceiling in our garage and putting it in the first time was a lot of work. I had to have extenders and, you know, you know, helicopters bring supports in and all that stuff. So I just, man, I thought I just got to get one that fits in the same support. So I did a lot of research and I went out and bought one and uh, brought it home and, you know, did what you're supposed to do. I, I took all the parts out of that, you know, there's like 10,000 parts, laid them all over the garage and I, I pulled out the manual. Man, this is a detailed manual, 70 pages, actually only 35 are in English, but still there's a lot of pages. And so, you know, it's in the afternoon. I start working and I'm putting it together and putting it together. And finally, at the end of the day, I get done and I stand back and it's all hooked up and it's plugged in and it's pretty cool. And I'm like, all right. And I, you know, pray for a minute and I hit the button. The garage door goes down. Perfect. Hit the button. Garage door goes up. Perfect. So I go out. I, uh, I, I get in my wife's car and I hit the remote control. Goes down. Hit the remote control. Goes up. It's just perfect. I'm still happy with myself. And I stand back and I'm like, yes, I'm done. And then I look around my house and I'm like, oh, I'm not done. I'll never be done because there's always something else to do in my house. And spiritually, we can kind of feel like that sometimes. I mean, we can, we could think about the cross and we could think about what Christ did. We can come at Easter and, you know, be excited about that. But it's so tempting for us sometimes to think like, but I need to do a little bit more. I need to give a little bit more. I'm, I'm not quite good enough yet. I haven't quite done enough. I haven't given enough. I haven't said enough for Jesus and I need to do something to add to that. But notice what Jesus said. He said, it is, it's finished. In fact, those three words in the English, it is finished. One word in the Greek, tetelestai is the, is the Greek word. Jesus says, and that word means to, to bring to completion, to, to accomplish, to end something. It's the word back then that you would use if you were, say, if you, uh, if, if you were paying off your house and you made the last payment and then you would go in and you would say, tethelestai, it's done, it's completed, I own it, you know? Maybe today, if you're in, in, in a class in high school or college and you have to write a term paper and you do the first draft and the second and the third and finally you're done and you take it into your teacher and you hand it to them, if you, if you wanted to be really, you know, spiritual, you could put it on their table and say, tethelestai, it's done. I'm done with you. I'm done with the paper. No more editing. It's all complete. And that's what Jesus says when he's up there. He says, I've done it. I finished it. It's complete. There's nothing else that can be done. Jesus is just saying that everything that contributes to salvation has already been accomplished. I know that's a really foreign concept for us. There are very few things in life where we ever feel like we're really, truly done. But Jesus says, when it comes to your salvation you need to understand that it is absolutely, completely accomplished. What does that mean? Well, for instance... uh you could be baptized, um, you know, next weekend, we have, a, we have a hot tub over here and uh, we call it a baptistry and we're going to take the top off next week and we're going to baptize some people. And, and maybe you're here and you're thinking you've never been baptized, you're, you're a follower of Christ, you want to be baptized. God, you can come and you can get baptized and God will be like, that's sweet. I love it when people are baptized. Guess how much credit you'll get from God for your salvation? <clears throat> Zero. God will be pleased by that, but that doesn't add anything to your salvation. You can give some money when the offering comes by at the end of the service and God may say, hey, that's great stewardship. But what does that get you in terms of brownie points with God? Nothing, because nothing can add to your salvation. You may decide to go home and, and read your Bible and study it and that's a, you should do that. It's a great thing to do or, or to, to live a life of prayer, to follow the teachings of Christ. All of those are great things. They bring benefit to your life and they honor God, but they don't add anything to your salvation. That was done by Christ on the cross. Jesus' last statements, Father, forgive them. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says, it is finished. But you know, his his, his last words on the cross were not his last words. They weren't the last words that he spoke. In fact, they, they took him off that cross after he died. They took him down. They put him in a tomb. They rolled a stone in front of the tomb. But the Bible says that three days later when they came back, he wasn't there. That the power of God raised Jesus from the dead, raised him from the dead. That stone was rolled away and Jesus began to appear to his disciples and he appeared in fact to hundreds over 40 days. And today at Easter, you know, we don't don't celebrate a cross with with a, a person up there. We don't do that because he didn't stay up there. It wasn't the end of the story, was it? No, they took him down. They put him in a tomb. You can't go to a tomb today in Israel and and, and go and see the body of Jesus because it's not there. He rose from the dead. And that's what we celebrate at Easter, a risen Savior. And what God says is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to everyone who will believe in him so that when this life is over, it will really only truly just begin for you and for me. And that's why we celebrate Easter. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is one that you probably know, even if you've, even if you've never read the Bible before, you've probably heard it. John 3.16. And it tells us this, For God so loved the world. I mean, that's why He did this. That's why He sought you, and that's why He's still seeking you today. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son on that cross so that whoever believes in Him, that's faith, Whoever places their faith in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's grace. So here's my question for you today as we, as we close off this time. Have you ever made that decision? Have you ever placed your faith in Christ? Because if you haven't done that, I would encourage you to do that right now. And you can do that by by just praying to God. In fact, I'll I'll pray with you in just a moment. And you can offer a prayer to God and just say, you know what, God, I don't really understand all this stuff. You might be like I was when I was 15. I really didn't know what I was doing. But I knew enough to call out to God and to ask Jesus to come into my life. And if you've never done that, I want to pray for you in a moment. But I also just want to say this. There may be some of you who are here today and there was a time in your life when, when you did that. And you can remember when you did that. But you came in here this morning to this service and there's a lot of stress in your life right now. There's a lot of effort for somewhere along the line you kind of lost track of the fact that you were saved by grace and maybe your Christian life has become a lot of work and it's become full of guilt and it's become full of effort and maybe you've slipped into that trap where you feel all the time like you're just not good enough. And today, again, God brings you here and he reminds you of the cross, which says it's never about being good enough. It's just about the work of Christ. Maybe it's been a while before you could just relax in that and enjoy the freedom in Christ. I would invite you this morning as we pray to just tell that to God and ask him once again to refresh that joy and that peace in your life. And uh, then we're gonna close with a few songs and, and if you'd like to come pray with someone, some of us will be up here, you could pray with us. If you just need someone to talk to, if someone brought you today, maybe you'd wanna talk with them or pray with them. But anything that we can do to help you in your spiritual journey, that's what we're here for. Let's pray together.